And take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 25. Still in Genesis 25, as we continue our journey through the first book of the Bible. Now, being an only child, I have never had to deal with what is known as sibling rivalry. Maybe some of you have had to deal with that in the, in the past. Uh, I've, I've talked with others who know all about sibling rivalry. Sometimes that rivalry uh, may manifest itself in, in innocent ways where just brothers and sisters are having a good time and they are, they're competitive, they're pitting themselves against one another in games or sports or other activities. Uh, sometimes that rivalry can get more serious where, where siblings may be in a constant struggle, a constant battle of one-upmanship or competing for the affections of their parents. I've even heard of brothers and sisters getting in physical altercations with one another. Just having knockdown, drag out fights because they could not get along. But there's never been a sibling rivalry quite like that between Esau and Jacob. A rivalry that was so intense that even as babies, there was expressions of hostility and antipathy. Now, last week we spent some time uh, thinking about Rebecca, who had married Isaac. And Isaac was the heir of the covenant promises that God made to his father, Abraham, promises of a multitude of offspring, promises of an inheritance in the land of Canaan, promises of global worldwide blessing to people of every nation and tribe and tongue. Rebecca had married into an incredible line. And surely she had high hopes for the future. But her hopes were stretched to the limit when she endured 20 years of infertility. But after 20 years of childlessness, she finally became pregnant. But that led to more hardship. Uh, Genesis 25:22 says that the children struggled together within her. Literally in the Hebrew, they were smashing themselves against each other inside of her body. If they had ultrasounds back then, you would have saw something that looked like a WWE professional wrestling match with one baby jumping off the top rope and landing an elbow on the other one. It was that bad. And, 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 and she is in turmoil here. Rebecca despairs of life itself. And she inquires of the Lord and, and God tells her what this means. Namely, that these two babies will be the fathers uh, of two people groups, and there will be conflict and division between them, and that one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It will be the younger whom God would choose to be the heir of the covenant promises of God. Now, what we're going to see in our text today is an example of that conflict played out in the life of Jacob and Esau. And I'm going to warn you up front that neither of these characters shine. They both come off as awful. And so one might even wonder why even read a story like this? Why not just skip this and go on to something more obviously uplifting? Because the reason why we're not skipping it is because the Apostle Paul says, speaking of the Old Testament narratives, that these things happen as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. So, with that in mind, with open Bibles and open minds and open hearts, ready to be instructed, ready to hear from God, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. We are in Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to start at verse 24 and read on down through the end of the chapter. Thus says the Lord, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. After his brother Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. And therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. 
So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that the the power of what's going to happen here in the next 45 minutes or so is not in the preacher. The power is in the Word that is preached. And so, speak, O Lord. Speak through Your Word, through this strange story. Speak to our hearts. Speak to believers. Show us what we are to learn from this. Speak to unbelievers and stir up conviction and open eyes and bring forth salvation and the new birth where it needs to happen. May your hand of blessing be upon this next segment of our worship service. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In our text today, um, we see at least four important things. Uh, The first thing is signs of bad blood brewing. Signs of bad blood brewing. Now, you kids may not know what that term bad blood means. The older I get, the more this happens to me. I say expressions that I think everybody knows, and my kids just look at me like I'm speaking Swahili or something. They don't know what I'm talking about. Bad blood. What does that mean? Well, one definition says bad blood is a feeling of ill will, anger, or hostility between people. Uh, When there's bad blood, people are not getting along. And with Jacob and Esau, this bad blood reached back to the very beginning, fighting and struggling against each other in the womb. Uh, Esau coming forth as the firstborn, but then, in what must have been a shock to the midwives, there was a, a little tiny hand and little tiny fingers belonging to baby Jacob clutching his brother's heel as if trying to drag him back into the womb and saying, no, I will be first. Now, there are several artful ways that Moses, the narrator, brings out this conflict between the brothers, and and one of the ways that he is doing this is through contrast. Uh, Though they're twins, two people could not have been more different. Uh, Even, they're different even in something as basic as their appearance. Uh, Verse 24 says that the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Ian Duguid calls Esau the very first redneck. Literally. He is red and hairy all over. Very animalistic in appearance, which uh, really is going to fit well with what we learn about Esau as an outdoorsman, as a, as a rugged, rough and tumble kind of guy. Can you imagine the shock of the midwives on that day pulling out this little hairy red guy? Would have been frightening. And then you got this other baby hanging on to him. And though they're twins, this other baby looked nothing like his brother. Just, he's just a typical smooth-skinned baby. In fact, years later, Jacob even describes his own skin as smooth in contrast to Esau's hairiness. But the twins are not just different in appearance. They're different in temperament. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Now, I must say that in many ways Esau initially seems more impressive and more likable than Jacob. He's he's more interesting, he's more charismatic, and someone who seems to be uh, more obviously associated with leadership, at least according to the standards of the world. If anyone should be the head and protector of the family, it's Esau. Tough and strong and and rugged. Uh, Later on, he's going to be described as one who is living by his sword. Esau could handle himself in a fight. He's the stereotypical man's man. He was a skillful hunter. Uh, He could could track his prey for miles. He he knew what it was like to live by the point of a weapon. Kind of guy that that I would be jealous of. I remember when I was uh, in 2012 moving to Alaska, this little tiny island. I was going to pastor a church up there, and I was just so 
I was intimidated. How am I going to fit in with all of these, these big, brawny, rough guys who build cabins with their bare hands in 24 hours? I just, I'm not going to fit in. I, those are the kind of guys that just intimidate me, but that, that I kind of want to be like. Esau was probably like his, his, uh, his uncle Ishmael, whom Genesis 21 says was an expert with the bow. I heard someone once say he was, Esau was probably one of the first subscribers to Guns and Ammo magazine. Uh, a text says he was a man of the field. He was more comfortable under a, uh, at a campfire under the stars than he was at home, living free and independent and doing whatever he wanted to do. That's Esau, and some of you are like, cool. <laughs> I like that guy. But even now, there are some, some undertones here that the careful reader will detect, undertones that are not positive. There's only, there's only one other person in the book of Genesis described as a skillful or mighty hunter. Do you know who that is? Uh, we met him back, way back in Genesis chapter 10. It's the warrior king, Nimrod, uh, the great arch enemy of God. Now, now, there's nothing wrong, of course, with, with hunting in and of itself. Some of you who love to hunt, uh, that's, that's a wonderful thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, just thinking in the context of Genesis, hunters and people who are skilled with weapons, whether that be Ishmael or Nimrod or go all the way back to Lamech in chapter 4, these are people who are outside of God's people who are seen as men living according to their own strength as opposed to trusting in the promises of God and relying on Him. And Esau is following in their footsteps. And in regards to him being a man of the field, again, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with being an outdoorsman. Uh, but the point of mentioning this here is to contrast him with Jacob. Into verse 27 says, Jacob was a quiet man who dwelled in tents. Uh, the Hebrew word there for quiet carries the idea of Jacob being civilized and well-cultured, which means that Esau was not also, Jacob was a tent dweller. He, he didn't go out on, on hunting trips with his brother. That doesn't mean he was lazy, uh, but probably uh, Jacob was a shepherd. He was a herdsman. And so his responsibilities would have uh, kept him closer to home. He was skilled in domestic work. Uh, in a moment, we're going to see him cooking. Uh, one commentator sums up the differences between these two young men uh, very well when he writes that, we thus meet the aggressive hunter versus the reflective nomad. Esau is the sportsman, rough, wild, free, boisterous, and exciting. Jacob is the settled man, stable, quiet, and civilized. And so Moses highlights the differences between the two to show us that these brothers, are, they're moving in opposite directions, and they are on a collision course. Just like the strange events of their birth, their, their outward differences as young men are just reflective of deeper differences uh, and brewing hostility between them. But there's, there's one more thing that sets the stage for the brothers' conflict. Sorry about this, y'all. This happened to me last week. This thing kept falling off. It's not playing nicely right now. The other thing that set the stage for the, the brothers' conflict was um, the favoritism and partiality shown by their parents. Uh, verse 28 says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Isaac loves his firstborn son. Why? Because this is my boy that God has blessed me with? No. He loves Esau because he ate of his game. Esau was a great hunter, and uh, evidently he brought back great meat. And it was obviously really, really good. And that's why Isaac loves Esau more. In essence, what drives Isaac's love for Esau is his own appetites and desires. And here we begin to see some chinks in Isaac's armor. Isaac had looked pretty good up until this point. Remember, this is Isaac. Isaac's a big deal. He's the child of promise, the miracle baby that came to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. This is Isaac, the one whom in, who in Genesis 22 was going to willingly allow himself to be sacrificed by Abraham on Mount Moriah at the command of God. What great faith and trust he must have had in the Lord and in his promises. This is Isaac, whom we saw last week, prayed with, his, prayed with faith for his barren wife for 20 years, refusing to take a second wife for children, though it was culturally acceptable to do so. And we see God answering his prayer. But now as we'll continue to see throughout the Bible, the best of men are men at best. 
And we're going to see in a couple of chapters that this favoritism governed by selfish appetites will lead Isaac to fight against the very plan of God himself. But the problem runs deeper. Isaac's sin is not just Isaac's sin. Isaac's example of allowing his life to be ruled and governed by his cravings, he's training his son Esau to do the exact same thing. Esau has learned to be who he is because he learned it all from dad. Fathers, beware. Your kids are watching you, and they are watching what you do more than hearing what you say. So what you do better line up with what you say, lest you teach them lessons you never wanted to teach them. And Rebecca, again, verse 28 But, putting that contrast there, but Rebekah loved Jacob. She favored the other son. And we aren't told why. Maybe it was because Jacob stayed close to home unlike Esau, and he was more a partner with her in the domestic duties. We don't know. Maybe it's because of the oracle from God that designated Jacob over Esau to be the heir of the covenant promises of God. And if so, perhaps she comes off slightly better than her husband because she is focused on something of greater value than Isaac is. But nevertheless, the favoritism is not a good thing here. And her favoritism will cause her uh, later on to lead her son into deceptive sin against Isaac. So mothers, beware. Your kids are watching you. They will follow your lead. Now, now the dangers of parental favoritism and setting bad examples for your kids are not, those aren't the main points of this story, but it would be a mistake just to kind of pass over this. Uh, Ian Duguid writes that children are all different in their temperament. Some are sporty and outgoing. Others are shy bookworms. Some are passionately musical or artistic while others prefer surfing the internet or tearing apart a car engine. How easy it would be to love those best whose interests and aptitudes are closest to ours and to use our children for our own gratification and pleasure. How terrible are the consequences of such favoritism. Isaac and Rebekah themselves prepared the ground for a lifetime of strife between their children. In time, their sin would come home to roost in a fitting judgment of God. Isaac would be deceived by his taste for wild game, while Rebecca would find her stay-at-home son propelled far away from her. And so we have in this household signs of bad blood brewing. But also, we see a horribly bad bargain struck. A horribly bad bargain struck. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. We're not told this explicitly, but some speculate that Esau, though a skilled hunter, this time comes home exhausted and spent in the wake of a failed hunt. And it may be why he's so tired and, and so hungry. He, he, he tried for days and, and came up totally empty-handed. And the irony here is that in this moment, Esau doesn't realize that he is being hunted, at least right now. And Jacob will prove to be a more cunning hunter than his brother. So Esau comes in and he has a need. Verse 30, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, the English translations don't really capture the attitude of Esau's request. Esau's tone in the original is, is more gruff. It's more brusque. It's, it's desperate, even somewhat animalistic in typical Esau fashion. Uh, he, he, he's really saying something like, quick, let me gulp down some of that stew, or more literally, feed me now. Alan Ross says the picture is one of a wild and blustery man pointing at the food. Uh, he's literally, in the Hebrew, saying, feed me now from the red stuff, red stuff. Red, red stuff is, is repeated there in the original text. He's hungry, and there's good food, and it smells good, and he wants it, and he wants it now. And there's an interesting parenthetical statement at the end of verse 30, therefore his name was called Edom. Edom sounds like the Hebrew word for red, and Moses' original Israelite audience discovers here the origin of the Edomites, 
Their enemies, who were among the first people to threaten and harass Israel as they came out of Egyptian slavery, and they were on their way to the promised land, and, and, and also here is revealed the origin of their hostility towards Israel. And, and this nickname, Edom, really serves as a double entendre. Uh, he was red at birth, but really what he's more remembered for is not his reddish appearance, but because of a bowl of red stuff, red stuff. So Esau famished and exhausted from the hunt, burst into Jacob's tent, probably smelled the aromas from far off, flops down on the beanbag, or whatever they had for chairs, and he's pointing at the stew, barely able to mouth the words, uh, barking out for the red stuff, red stuff, and make it fast. By the way, as is often the case with impulsive, over-the-top, over-emotional guys, he's probably exaggerating his need. I have no doubt he's really hungry, and he's probably weak, but I don't think he's really about to die. He's going to say so in a minute. But if he were really close to death, he wouldn't be, even be able to have this much of a conversation with his brother. But, but Esau, being a man so driven by his cravings and appetites, probably feels like he's dying. And so Jacob says in response, well, of course, my beloved brother Esau, we're, we're flesh and blood after all. And so, you know, I've always got your back no matter what. I'd be happy to serve you the stew, as they say at Chick-fil-A. It's my pleasure. If only Jacob would have said that. Instead, he says, verse 31, sell me your birthright now. Now, the birthright was very important in the ancient Near East. It was designated to the firstborn. And the possessor of the birthright would get a double portion of the family's inheritance. So, for example, if there are six sons and the firstborn gets double... And how much would the firstborn get? Do the math. Some of you are like, no thanks. I'm not good at math. You do it for me. It's, it, it, the firstborn would not get one-sixth. That's, that's what it would be if, if it was evenly distributed between all six people. He wouldn't get one-sixth. The firstborn would get one-third, right? And therefore, the remaining two-thirds would be divided up among the other five sons. But check this out. What if there were only two sons? Then what? Well, if it's going to be a, an equal distribution, it'd be half and half, right? But what if the son were to get a double inheritance? How much would the firstborn get? Everything. You get everything. And the other brother gets nothing. What's more, the owner of the birthright is the leader of the family. He's the chief patriarch. He's the spiritual leader. And in this family the heir of the covenant that God made to their grandfather Abraham and said, you'll be a great nation and you'll get this land and through you will come a savior who will crush the devil and bless the world. You'll be, you'll, you'll be a centerpiece in God's plan to redeem the cosmos. No other family, no matter how wealthy, has ever had an inheritance like this to pass on to future generations. This is what Jacob is asking for in exchange for a bowl of red stuff, red stuff. And you would think that Esau would look at Jacob and say, are you crazy? <laughs> what are you thinking? Give up all of that for that? I'd sooner die than give up my birthright. You'd think that's what he would say. Instead, he says in verse 32, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. The thing that is driving Esau right now is not a glorious future inheritance, but his present appetites, his cravings, his desires for immediate gratification in the moment right now, no matter what the price. Esau is essentially saying, who cares? Who cares about the things of God? That's of no use to me right now. Who cares about, uh, about that spiritual stuff? I'm in the real world with real practical needs. Covenant of Abraham, so what? Well, what's that got for me now? And Jacob, and man, Jacob is such a weasel here, isn't he? He still won't give Esau anything. He's holding that bowl of stew that aroma wafting into Esau's nostrils. He's just dragging this out, and he just holds it there and stares at his hungry brother, and he says in verse 33, swear to me now. This is cold, cunning cruelty on the part of Jacob. 
One commentator writes that even when Esau made what sounded like a verbal commitment to do so in response, Jacob demanded that Esau swear an oath dragging the name of the Lord into this shoddy enterprise. And then we're told that Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. I can almost see Jacob's face softening and a smile on his face as he says, of course, dear brother, here's some stew. You're going to love this. Oh, and here's some bread. This is is wonderful. This is wonderful bread. This is my best recipe. It's my pleasure to serve you. And he's grinning, a devilish grin, because he's got what he wants. Now, some people soften what Jacob has done here, and they say, well, at least Jacob valued the birthright. He valued what was truly valuable, unlike Esau. And I'm willing to concede that. But no one defends Jacob's callous actions to get that birthright. Sure, the the oracle of God spoke of the younger son gaining supremacy over the older, but Jacob was wrong in his attempts to try to make God's promises come true through sinful means. Does, Does any of this sound familiar if you've been reading the book of Genesis? I mean, that's the, that's the problem that Abraham and Hagar fell into. If you're mad at Jacob, just hang in there. God will deal with him later. But for now, the author actually isn't interested in us spending too much time reflecting on Jacob. The spotlight here is for Esau. The main instruction that God has for you in this text isn't about parental favoritism, And it isn't about Jacob's tactics. It's about Esau's stupidity, which leads to my third point where we see a depressingly bad ending. A depressingly bad ending. Verse 34, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Now, how Moses writes this says a lot. He just, in rapid fire, staccato fashion, just throws out verb after verb after verb. He ate, he drank, he rose, he went. Boom, 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 boom. And and this is meant to communicate just a quick, thoughtless, brief moment of satisfying his needs and just walking away. There's no thought. There's no reflection at all over the magnitude of what has just happened. He's indifferent. Who cares? I have a full belly, got what I wanted, he ate, he drank, he rose, he went. You could add, he burped, he took a nap. Just went on his way. No big deal. It's reminiscent of the the first sin in the garden where Adam and Eve also disregarded their birthright in exchange for fulfilling their immediate appetites. And in Genesis 3, 6, we're told again with a succession of verbs, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. Similar. And then the story ends with these chilling words, thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, this is very interesting because in in, in biblical Old Testament narratives, it is not very common for the narrator to make a judgment call, to to like make an evaluative uh, judgment statement about what's going on, whether whether it's good or bad. Typically, they just tell the story, and and then if there's any judgments, you make them. So this is really interesting that here the narrator actually makes a judgment call here, thus Esau despised his birthright. That's important. This is one of the reasons why I'm saying that that what Esau is doing here is the main point. It's the main focus. It's the main lesson here, the main thing we're supposed to, to think about. Despise is a word that's very important, used throughout the Old Testament to describe the way the unrighteous feel about God and his promises and his people. The word reflects an inner attitude. It means to treat as worthless. What Esau valued was not the promises and purposes of God, but the lusts and desires of his own heart. And by the way, what you value the most, what you consider of greatest worth, inevitably turns out to be the thing that you worship. Our word worship comes from an older word. Worth-ship. Worth-ship means to ascribe value to something. And Esau makes it very clear that what he values more than anything else is immediate gratification of his cravings and impulses. 
Immediate gratification was the idol of his heart. Something I want really bad right now, and if I have to trade in the ways and purposes of God to get it, so be it. I'm going for it. And the reason why Moses is telling us this story is not so we can sit in judgment over Esau and say, thank God I'm not like that guy, that idiot. I can't believe he'd do something like that. If you respond that way, you've totally missed the point. Moses has this in here as a warning. Moses knew of the propensity of his kinsmen, the Israelites, that the propensity of disregarding the things of God in favor of lesser things. And the Holy Spirit, who is the author behind the author, knows that all people in all times and in all places have a propensity to do the exact same thing because, my friends, you and I are more like Esau than we think. You and I, as Christians, have been purchased by God. And we have been given a glorious birthright, glorious inheritance. Not only do we have forgiveness of sins, not only will we go to heaven when we die, but the very best part about the inheritance is that we get God. But every time we sin, in that moment, we despise God. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but I think you should. How many times have your own sinful impulses and desires and appetites pulled you in a certain direction and you're on the brink of sinning and you know it's sin and you know it's wrong and you do it anyway to fulfill your desires? Now, we do this more often than we think. Like when we give in to the sinful desires of anger and we just explode at our spouse or our kids because we just feel like we've got to do it, we've got to vent. And, and, and we need to do it now, and we know it's wrong, but it feels so good in the moment. Who cares about what God says? Or maybe, maybe, the, maybe we're in a situation in business, and, and we just, if we just break a few little laws so I can gain a financial advantage, who cares? It's no big deal. Nobody's going to know. Nobody cares about this. I got to provide, provide for my family anyway. I have these needs. This is the real world. What good are the things of God to me right now? I'm sure he'll understand. He'll he'll forgive me anyway. Or, I know God says don't be unequally yoked. And I I shouldn't, and so maybe I shouldn't date this unbeliever and move towards marriage. But but she's so good to me. And we get get along so well. Or he's a great guy and I can't find any Christian guys. I'm not supposed to just sit around for, for 30 years and wait for a Christian guy. Who cares about this one little tiny Bible verse? I can't be lonely forever. Or when we're alone at night and we're feeling depressed or angry or needy or lonely and we click on that porn website to indulge for an hour or two or three and you know it's wrong, but I have needs. I need gratification now. And when you do that, or when you commit any other kind of sin. You fill in the blank with with your pet sin. You got them. When you commit any other kind of sin, you're making a statement in that moment about what you value and what you despise. What you think you really need and what you don't need. What good is a birthright to me? Now, (laughs) we would never say those words, right? Right? That's exactly what we communicate whenever we give in to sin and refuse to live according to the promises of God. We all can be like Esau. So, so, so the, the point here is, is not just look at this text and just kind of look at Esau. The point is to look at this and look in the mirror. We all can be like Esau. That's why Esau comes back later on in the Bible and the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12 to serve as a warning to churches. Now, Hebrews chapter 12 needs to be considered in the context of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is that great hall of faith chapter, and the whole overarching point of Hebrews 11 
is that the fuel that propels you forward in holiness and obedience to God isn't your own strength, and it isn't your raw willpower, it is instead faith or trust in the future promises and inheritance that God has coming for all of his people. It's a belief that what God has coming for you in Christ is superior to any temporary satisfaction you get from the pleasures of sin. And so the common denominator of all the, the faithful, faithful saints that are listed in Hebrews 11 is that they believed that receiving all the greater things they could get in God was worth denying themselves immediate gratification that came with indulging the lesser things. Those who live most successfully for God are those who have their eyes constantly fixed, constantly ahead, fixed on the promises of God that are superior to the promises offered through the temporary gratification of sinful desires. And so Moses in Hebrews 11, one of my favorite examples there, though a prince of Egypt, turns away from all of that, turns away from the treasures and pleasures of Egypt because he considers the things that he will have in Christ, even the suffering, uh, uh, something greater because he's looking forward to the reward. And so, in light of those truths in Hebrews 11, you then come to chapter 12. And the author writes in verse 14, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Those are horrifying verses. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral like Esau. And you say, what? <laughs> I, I don't remember reading anything in Genesis, about, uh, Genesis 25 about Esau's sexual immorality. But he was engaged in that. What, what we're discovering here in Hebrews is that the impulsive nature of, of Esau that we saw in Genesis 25 wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't a single incident. Genesis 25 didn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't that Esau was just living this faith-filled, moral life, and then all of a sudden committed the horrible sin of despising his birthright. No. Esau's foolish bargain is just the culmination. It's the climax of an entire lifestyle built on despising the things of God. It's just part of a a long-term pattern of worshiping his own idolatrous lusts that manifested itself in in sexual immorality and unholy living. Over and over and over and over and over and over again, he bowed down to the sinful desires of his heart and the idol of immediate gratification. And the thing about that idol, y'all, is that it is never gratified. The more you sacrifice to that God, the more it demands And for Esau, it got to the point where he willingly sold his soul, giving up the the precious inheritance of God, the most valuable possession he had, trading it in for a bowl of red stuff, red stuff. And while we are all capable of being like Esau, the author of Hebrews is giving us a sober warning here that for the one that constantly gives himself over to that lifestyle, there comes a point where there's no turning back. He says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau's tears aren't the tears of a genuinely repenting man. God forgives all who are genuinely repentant. Instead, what Esau seeks with tears is not genuine repentance, but blessing. Uh, We're going to see those tears in Genesis 27. Esau is sorry about the consequences of his sin, but that's as far as it goes. He's he's walked away from God. He's walked away from the promises of God fully and finally. His heart is totally hardened, and for Esau, there was no path back to blessing. The warning of the life of Esau weighs heavily on me, in particular for our young people, our, our, our kids, our Our youth. Our teenagers, kids, teenagers, hear this. When I come up here, this is not just big boy sermons. This is for everybody. This is, this is for, the, for the youth 
as well. Many of you have grown up in a Christian home with Christian teaching from Christian parents, and you're in a Christian church that loves you. Like Esau, you have incredible privileges taught for as long as you can remember about Jesus. Uh, Through this word, things have been revealed to you that the majority of, of the kids of this world know nothing about. But for some of you, there may be a temptation to despise the heritage and the blessing that your Christian mom or your Christian dad or, or your Christian grandparents want to pass on to you, and, and there's a temptation to, to just to, to despise that and exchange it all for red stuff, red stuff, for temporal pleasures, for the things of this world, for things that might not even be inherently bad, but they become greater to you than God. And you end up valuing those things more than God. And so I would challenge you young people, I say this with much love to you, much love to you. Don't despise the things that you've been taught. Don't cast those things away. Don't exchange it for lesser things. And don't let your life, uh, instead let your life be uh, governed not by your appetites, but by the promises of God and the blessings that he has. Esau epitomizes the problem, not just of young people, but of all people. Esau tried to save his life. He tried to get what he needed in his own way and in his own strength, living for the moment and satisfying whatever desire and urge that comes upon him. Jesus says, whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Here's the rub. Jacob's no better. Jacob's no better. He's no better than Esau. He tried to get what he needed in his own strength and in his own way through his scheming and manipulation and trusting in himself, trusting in his cleverness which proves really that neither of them are actually worthy to be the heir of the, of the promises of God. And you and I are, are no better, which means that the story of Jacob and Esau is pretty depressing if we let the story stand on its own. But thanks be to God, this isn't the end of the story. And thanks be to God that the promise of blessing the, uh, blessing the world, blessings to the world, doesn't ultimately rest on the shoulders of either brother. And so the story of Jacob and Esau should point us to a glorious, gloriously better ending. A gloriously better ending. We, we, we don't read the Old Testament like the New Testament hasn't happened. We read it through the lens of the New Covenant. Now while Jacob will receive the covenant promises of Abraham... Jacob is not worthy of them, and he cannot make them come to pass. Instead, God graciously will use Jacob to be simply the next in line, uh, in a long line of caretakers, stewards of the promises, until finally the worthy one comes. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? Now, Paul is not denying that promises were made to the the descendants of Abraham, the Jews. He's not denying that. Instead, he's saying that in its most ultimate sense, the promises are made to Jesus, the descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this Jesus does what we could not do on our own. Jesus was not in the lush garden of Eden in front of a tree. Jesus was in the barren, rocky wilderness with no food around at all. And folks, he was way more hungry than Esau was, having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. His cravings for food and gratification ran much deeper than we could ever know. And the devil comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, despise it. Despise your birthright, despise your inheritance, forget God's way, do it yourself, take these stones, turn them into bread. And Jesus turns to Satan and says, no, 
And in denying the temptation, Jesus is essentially saying that because I am a son, I do have a birthright and I do have an inheritance and therefore I know that the Father will provide for me and he's going to do it in his way and in his time and I will not throw away the future inheritance that is coming to me, an inheritance that includes blessing the entire world. I will not exchange that birthright for a piece of bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, nor by red stew alone. Man shall not live by his job alone, or through the immediate gratification of desires, or through his own strength, or through his own wisdom. Man shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because what God says, what God says is superior to every other craving in my life. And in Jesus' perfect obedience to God, He alone proved himself worthy of all the covenant promises of God. He alone proved himself to be the true heir of them all. And and his inheritance includes a kingdom that will never end. But if all Jesus did was come and live a life worthy of the promises, then guess what? He would be the sole heir and would rule an empty kingdom. But he will not rule an empty kingdom. And so... Jesus, the worthy heir, dies for the sins of his unworthy people, sins that will cut everyone off from enjoying the kingdom, sins like despising the things of God. And in taking the death penalty on the cross on behalf of all people who live like Esau and Jacob, in doing that, he purchases, he secures the inheritance of Abraham for everyone who will trust in him. And trusting him doesn't mean being perfect. It simply means seeking to turn away from your sins, from doing things your way, the way of Esau, and instead putting your hope in Jesus. Uh, Jesus, the only one who is worthy to inherit the promises. Don't hope in your wits and your strength. Don't hope in your ability to be good. Instead, hope in Him who really was good and hope in His death and His resurrection and, and hope in the path and the promises He has for His people. And when you do that, guess what happens? When you trust in Jesus, you become one with Jesus, which means that his inheritance becomes yours. You you don't have to earn the inheritance because he earned it for you. An inheritance that includes sonship, a a membership into the family of God, peace with God, Resurrection from the dead and an eternal kingdom where his people will rule and reign with him. A kingdom where at his right hand isn't red stuff that's here today and gone in five minutes. Instead, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you're a believer, then live like this is true, will you? Live like this is true. Live according not to your idolatrous lusts, but live according to your birthright and to your inheritance. If you're an unbeliever, you need to know that to give yourself over to an Esau-like life, just following your own appetites and desires with no regard to the things of God, is just a dead end. Remember Psalm 84, which I read earlier, The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he uphold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold. The reason why we turn from God, the reason why we sin is because we do believe God withholds good things. And so we've got to go after those good things ourselves. But Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. And Psalm 84 ends by saying, blessed is or happy is the one who trusts in you. So whatever you're chasing outside of God pales in comparison to all that you can have in God. And Therefore, I would challenge you, friend, to carefully consider and ponder the words of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I want my life to be shaped and governed by that verse. I want your life to be shaped and governed by that verse. 
not by sinful appetites. God, help us, help us to be a people and a church that really believes that and goes after it with everything that we have. And that means, if that verse is true, that means that whatever you might lose, whatever you might have to give up in your pursuit of the kingdom is of no comparison to the riches that you gain in Christ. Indeed, compared to the kingdom, all the treasures of this world combined, all the money, all the possessions, the careers, the, the entertainment, the, the accolades, uh, getting into the, the right social circles and being accepted by people, uh, the, the sinful pleasures, even the pleasures that are not bad in and of themselves, all of those things, if, if those things are ultimately what you're chasing to give you life, you will find that compared to the kingdom, they all end up being nothing more than a bowl of red stuff, red stuff. So choose wisely. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we walk away this morning feeling the weight of Genesis 25 and this story that maybe to some people seems strange and obscure and irrelevant, and yet it has all the relevance in the world. Our, our lives are at stake based on whether or not we really get what Genesis 25 is saying. So, Father, help us to get it. Help believers to get it and get it more. Help unbelievers for the first time to see this, to recognize it, to love it, and to embrace it, and to go after it. And, Father, thank you so much that you offered up your son as a sacrifice for our sins. We are not worthy. We are not. We are all Esau-like. We've all been animalistic in the pursuit of our own lusts. We've all despised the things of God. Nobody's better than anybody. We've all been there. And we all deserve nothing but, but being cut off from the promises. And yet for a time... For, for, for a few hours on the cross, you cut off your son as a substitute experiencing and, and suffering what we deserve, paying that price so that others may enter in and enjoy the kingdom with Jesus. Thank you for a great love, and thank you for a great Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.